Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Exodus chapter 3. As a senior in college, I had to take a philosophy class. And we had to read the Discourse on a Method by the French mathematician René Descartes. And he had that famous line, Je pense, donc je suis. For those of you that don't know French, I think, therefore, I am. You've heard that statement before. I think, therefore, I am. Now, I'm not going to get into all the intricacies and philosophical mumbo-jumbo of what that means, but that statement in the 1600s set the Western world on fire. And basically what it means is if you find yourself thinking right now, whether what you're thinking is true or what you're thinking is false, if you're thinking right now, that's proof that you exist because those thoughts are part of you. And his argument is that even if a powerful demon could come and convince you that you didn't exist, you would have to exist in order for that demon to deceive you in the first place. Now here's the point. Every single human being is contingent or dependent upon someone else for their existence. You just didn't pop into existence. Children, you can go back and talk to your parents about this later on, but a mother and a father came together and you were produced, you were born. And your parents had parents and they had parents. And you go all the way back to Adam and Eve and they were created by God. And the reason that you are, not necessarily because you think, the reason you are is because you were created. God created you. You did not create your own existence. You did not control how you came into existence. You are totally and absolutely dependent upon God for your very being. Now, why do I bring up that famous line from a French mathematician, I think, therefore, I am? There's a greater and far more powerful statement that puts that phrase to shame. And it was uttered by God to Moses out of the burning bush. This passage of Scripture before us teaches some of the most profound truths about the nature and character of our great God. Last week, we saw that God is a consuming fire. He's absolutely holy. He speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. Moses, do not come near, for where you're standing is is holy ground. Take off your sandals. And I believe this morning we are about to step onto that holy ground. And we need to treat this passage of Scripture with some reverence and some care. And we need to soak out of this passage of Scripture all of the wonder and excitement that are there for us. And let me just start by saying we're not probably going to fully understand what this means. 
And I think that's the beauty of it. If we were meant to understand it, we would be just like God. So there's some mystery to what we're going to look at this morning. So let's, let's pick off kind of where we left off last week. I want us to pick up in, ch- in chapter 3, verse 9, and read through the end of the chapter. And again, this is Moses at the burning bush and the Lord speaking to him out of the burning bush. So let's pick up in verse 9. And this is God speaking. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. For this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to see three descriptions of our great God. As, as God appears to Moses out of the burning bush. And here's the first, God's purposeful plan. God's purposeful plan. You know, God's always had a plan for Israel, whether they understood it or not. God made a promise, God made a covenant way back hundreds of years earlier in the book of Genesis to the Israelites. And God prophesied to Abraham when Abraham was in a dream that they would be in slavery for 400 years, but, but God also gave this promise. In Genesis 15, 13-14, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And this is the, the key point. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. So this is God's purposeful plan in the moment. 
to choose Moses as the man of the hour to go back to Egypt and to release the people from slavery. And in verse 10, you know, Moses hears these very unsettling words. You want me to do what, God? Go back to the place I grew up? The place where I left a miserable failure because I tried to take matters into my own hand and I killed the Egyptian? Look at verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring the people, the children out of Egypt. I'm sending you, Moses. You're going. What's Moses' answer? What's Moses' response in verse 11? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? This just popped into my head, so this is something that wasn't in my notes. You guys remember the movie, the, the TV show Different Strokes back in the 70s? What are you talking about, Willis? Like, what are you talking about, God? You're sending me to go back to the Egyptians? Now think about Moses for a moment. He was a failure. Remember, he had tried once in his own power to be the deliverer, to release the Israelites, and he failed miserably by murdering the Egyptians. And he had to flee. He had to run away to Midian as a fugitive. And now, on the backside of nowhere, minding his own business, God shows up to him after 40 years in a burning bush and says, Moses, the very place that you ran from, the very place you were a failure in, the very place that you're afraid to go back to, I'm sending you there to face the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh. And you can understand Moses' apprehension. Moses is weak. Why me? Now, here's the amazing thing. God does not rebuke Moses for his weakness. God doesn't say, Moses, get a grip. Put on your big boy pants and and do it in your own power. God does not shatter Moses in that moment of weakness. As a matter of fact, what does God do? God meets Moses' inadequacy with his adequacy. Look at the answer. What does God say to him in verse 12? God said, I am will be with you. Moses, I'm going to be with you all the way. You're not doing this alone. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a sign. When you lead these two million people out, you're going to come back to the same mountain. Now, this is the mountain of God, Horeb, Sinai. Thankfully, God does not call us based upon our ability to perform. If God called you based upon your ability to perform, none of us would ever be called to ministry. None of us would ever be called to service. None of us would ever be called to do anything for God in our own power. Because God prefers to call those who are weak, those who are clueless, those who are powerless, those that don't know how to do anything. And I'm thankful for that. Because I don't know about you, but I've been there before. Have you not been there before? I don't know what I'm doing. God, I don't know where I'm going. I feel weak, I feel powerless, I feel hopeless, I feel helpless. God, I don't know what you're calling me to do. I can't do this. And God says, exactly. You can't do this. It's not in your power to do this. I will be with you. It was the words that Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God says to Moses, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm sending you. You may not think you deserve to go. You're a failure, yes. You're a fugitive, yes. But I'm a holy God. I'm sending you 
and I'm going with you. I'm promising you my presence. It's my purposeful plan, Moses. It's been my plan all the way from the beginning. And now it's time to, to, to enact the plan. It's time for it to go into action. So that's the first thing we see, God's purposeful plan. But the second thing we see is God's personal name. Now Moses is not through with questioning God. And this questioning carries on into chapter 4, as we'll see next week. So Moses asks another question. Okay, God, that's all fine and good. You're, you're promising that you're going to go with me. But I'm going to go back to these people that don't trust me, these people that rejected my leadership, and, and I'm supposed to go to them and say, hey, God's sending me to you. And what if they ask me, the, the name of this God, what am, I, what am I supposed to tell them is your, your name? Now that may sound strange, that Moses would go back to the Israelites and they wouldn't know who God was. What's his name? Did the Israelites forget who God was? Well, we really don't know, but think about the Israelites for a moment. They had been in Egyptian paganism for 400 years. They had been steeped in a pagan culture. And when you go back and you read the latter parts of Genesis and you read the, the first part of Exodus, the name the Lord, the Lord. When you see the word Lord in your Bibles in all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, that name had been forgotten for about four or five hundred years. The people did not remember the name Yahweh. Now God's generic name in the Old Testament is Elohim, God, but Yahweh is that personal covenant name that God reveals himself to his people. And so how does the Lord answer Moses' question? It's nothing less than staggering in how God answers the question. But before we explore how God answers him, let's just stop and think about the amazing nature that God even answered Moses. What's your name, God? I'm not going to give that to you. That's not for you to know. That's, that's on a need-to-know basis, Moses. Well, God reveals his personal name to Moses. He doesn't rebuke him for asking that. There's no way to really do justice to how this phrase is translated in the Hebrew language. But if you look there in verse 14, I am is very close to how you would say Yahweh in the original language. Yahweh is very similar to I am. And Yahweh means the Lord. Now, there's about three different ways you can take that phrase, depending on the Hebrew language. You could translate it, I have always been as I have always been, past tense which stresses the eternal nature of God's character. He's always been God, and He will always be God. He has no beginning. He has no, bit, no end. He's always been God. It's the everlasting God. That's one way you can take it, which I think would be accurate. Another way you can take it is the way it's translated here in the present tense. I am who I am which means that God alone defines who he is. Nothing compares to him. Now, for example, I can say, I am tall, six foot two. I am blonde. I am Don's husband. 
I am Aiden and Zachary's dad. I am the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. I am a created being. Everything about me is defined in relationship to something else. I can't just stand up here emphatically and say to you, I am. Wow, that's cool, Sean. You got a kind of a big head there. You are what? No, I just am. Now, wait a minute. You, you are? I am. I can't do that. My total existence has been defined by God as my creator. I can't exist without God. I can't be defined without depending on others. I am Greg and Cheryl's son. Therefore, I am created. My existence is dependent on others. And my existence is limited and constrained. For example, I can't come to you and say, I am six foot six and can dunk like Michael Jordan. Now, would that that would be true. I've always wanted to be six foot six and dunk like Michael Jordan. That ain't going to happen because I have physical limitations. I am Superman and I can fly. Well, no, you're delusional, Sean. You can't say that. I've always wanted to fly like Superman. No matter what I would like for myself to be, I am constrained by limitations. I'm a created being. I can't define reality. I can't change reality. I have major limitations as a finite human. I can't just be what I want to be. I can't overcome these obstacles no matter how hard I try. But that's not the case for God. God is a self-existent one who has no equals. God's not constrained by anything. God defines ultimate reality. No force, no person, nothing in all the universe can dictate to God what he is or what he can do or what he can't do. So I have always been that I've always been the eternal God. I am who I am, the self-existent God who defines ultimate reality. The third way you could translate this is, in the future tense, I will be who I will be. This, this refers to God's action, that God's going to act now, and he's going to continue to act into the future. You can count on this God. But there's another way you can take this, I am who I am, if you look at the original language. It doesn't just speak of God's existence. It also speaks of God being the creator and sustainer and governor of all things. In other words, not only is God the one who exists, but everything else in all creation exists because God exists. He sustains. He creates. He rules over all things. He causes all things to be ultimate reality. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Just listen to a couple of these passages of Scripture that talk about God being the self-existent God, the God who has no needs, the God who defines ultimate reality, the God who is. Job 41, 11. God says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You can't pay God back. He owns everything. Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Paul is on Mars Hill, and he's approaching the Athenians who have an unknown God. And listen to what Paul teaches about our God, the great I Am, in Acts 17, 24 through 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything. We need things all the time. God needs nothing because he created all things. Romans 11, 34 through 36. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Rhetorical question. Answer, nobody. Who's been his counselor? Hey, God, come into my office so I can give you some counsel on how to do things. Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God, I want to pay you back. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord is promising his very presence to Moses that he's not just the I am, but that he's going to be active in leading and guiding Moses, that he's absolutely Lord. And in verse 15, we see that he's the covenant God tied back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Thus, this is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay, I am. It speaks of the omniscience of God. Now, that's a big word. Omniscience means God's all-knowing. God knows everything because he's the creator of all things. And that's good. But Moses needs something beyond just God knowing all things. He not only needs God to be omniscient, he needs God to be omnipotent, all-powerful. You see, it was one thing for Moses to be overwhelmed by, the God, by, by God's self-existence. That, that would have been overwhelming to Moses. But let's just let's be practical for a moment. Let's, just be, let's put ourselves in Moses' shoes. That's awesome, God. I'm glad you're the I am. And that blows my mind. I could sit here and think forever about what that means. But I just remembered what you just told me a few minutes ago. You're sending me back to Egypt. I need you to be with me and to lead me, and I need your power. He not only needed a God who is, but a God who acts. You see, we need a God who is, but also a God who acts on our behalf. So we've seen God's purposeful plan. Moses you're going back to Egypt. I don't want to go. Who am I? I will go with you. Number two, God's personal name. What do I tell him is your name when, when I get there? I am who I am. The third thing we see is this. 
God's powerful hand. God's powerful hand. Verse 16, Go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Go to the elders, go back, and tell them, I have observed. I've seen. Now, the word observed there that you see in verse 16 I have observed. That's the way the ESV translates it. It's, it's, a, it's a strong word in the original language. It means more than just God kind of knew about it or God kind of gave a watchful eye. It carries the idea that, no, God not only observed it, but God was going to act in power to do something about it. It's the God who sees and the God who acts. He's going to move, and he's going to move quickly, and he's going to move through Moses. But Moses has got to go back to the elders first. You see, the Lord is the God who is. He's also the Lord who acts. And again, let's think about Moses. Let's put ourselves in Moses' shoes. What was his last, his last experience in Egypt? He was a murderer, and the Israelites turned on him. They rejected his leadership and told on him, and that's why he had to flee. So he has to, he has to go back to the elders, the leaders. And he's got to waltz right back into Egypt and sit down with the leaders of Israel and say, listen, guys, let me tell you about this experience I had. I was out in the, in the, in the, in the bushes minding my own business, and God showed up to me in a burning bush. And by the way, he says I'm the great I am. And by the way, we're going to go into Pharaoh and say, let my people go. What do you think about that plan? Moses is probably scared to death. But what does God say to him? They will listen to you. Look at verse 18. They will listen to your voice. God's omniscient. God knows all things. They're going to listen to you, Moses. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Three days journey in the wilderness. That's what you got to do, Moses. Go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, and say, Pharaoh, can you please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness to worship and sacrifice to our God? Now, you may think, that's weird. That doesn't sound like a very, very big deal. Well, think about a big deal of packing up two million people. All right, how many of you have gone on a three-day excursion with kids? How much time and energy does it take? You're talking packing up two million people to go out to the wilderness to worship. Three days journey in that ancient culture was code word. It was an idiom. It was an expression. For Here's basically how you can translate it in the English. Pharaoh, we're leaving Egypt and never coming back. Thank you very much. It's basically what it was. It kind of in a polite way. Like when I talk to Don and say, hey, can you please give me the remote? What am I really saying? I want to control the channels. But how am I asking her? Please give me the remote. It's kind of a veiled way of saying, I'm the one in charge and I'm going to take over what we watch, but I'm going to ask you nicely for the remote. It's the same way that Moses would walk into Pharaoh and say, listen, we're really leaving Egypt, whether you like it or not, but can you please let us go? That's a big deal because Pharaoh would have been fearful. It's his biggest fear. Two million of his slave labor leaving, never coming back. 
as well as what if Israel goes out and forms an alliance with one of my enemies and comes back to invade me? Do you think Pharaoh's going to say, yeah, Moses, take your people and go? No, actually, God's hand is involved in this. Verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. He's not going to let you go. As a matter of fact, I'm going to harden his heart so he doesn't let you go. And if you end up going, it's going to be because he's compelled by a mighty hand. I think the New American Standard says under compulsion. The original language would be, no, not even by a mighty hand. My hand's going to have to move, Moses. And at this time, Moses doesn't even know about the plagues. It's going to take ten plagues, Moses, before this, this, this man, this leader, ultimately decides to let you go. And even then, he's not going to really let you go. I'm going to have to compel him to go. My mighty outstretched hand is going to have to move in judgment. So when you talk about the mighty outstretched hand of God in the book of Exodus, that's a metaphor for God's power. My outstretched hand is going to move in power, Moses. You are going to have the full backing of my hand. Not only is he the God who is, but he's the God who moves his hand in action to bring about his will. Even if that means compelling Pharaoh. You see there in verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Moses, I'm telling you in advance what's going to happen. So don't be surprised when Pharaoh's heart's hard and he doesn't let you go and he has to be compelled by a mighty hand. I'm telling you in advance. Now, he doesn't give him all the details about the ten plagues. He just says, listen, you're going to go to Pharaoh, and he's not going to let you go. But eventually he will, but it's going to be my hand that moves him. I'm going to work out the counsel of my will. So I'm not just the God who is. I'm the God who acts with my mighty outstretched hand. I'm the sovereign I am. And then in verses 21 through 22, we find out that they're going to plunder the Egyptians. God's going to orchestrate events where they're going to, they're going to walk out with riches. It's not going to be through warfare either. They're just going to say, hey, give me your stuff, and the people are going to give them their stuff, and they're going to walk out. Now, I am. God has a purposeful plan. He's got a personal name, and he's got a powerful hand. And I thought this week, what's the one word that would describe the great I am? And this is the best word I could come up with. He is the inexhaustible God. Now, what does it mean by being inexhaustible? It means he never gets tired. It means he has no beginning. He has no end. He's infinite. He's limitless. He's self-existent. He's sovereign. He's eternal. He's incomprehensible. You really fully can't understand God. Moses knew this well. Do you realize Moses wrote one of the Psalms? I don't know if you know that. Psalm 90 is written by Moses. What does Moses say in Psalm 90? Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. There's a Dutch theologian, Gerhardus Voss, and he gave an excellent description of what it means for God to be the I Am. He says, quote, the name gives expression to the self-determination, the independence of God we call his sovereignty. 
the name signifies primarily that in all God does for his people, he is self-determining, not moved upon by outside influences. You can't move God to do anything. You can't make God do anything. God is self-existent, who has no needs. God does not need you. Now, here's the paradox that I struggle with all week. Wow. If God is absolutely sovereign, and he's absolutely existent, and he's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful, and he's not moved by outside influences, and he's totally self-existent and doesn't need us at all, why in the world does he call us to worship him? You ever thought about that? Why does God call us to worship him if he doesn't need the worship? Does God need our worship? I thought God was intrinsically holy. Why give him worship? Does God need our praise? Here's the vocabulary we as Christians need to get out of our vocabulary. God doesn't need anything, especially us. So God doesn't need us. God exists without us, but here's the beautiful paradox. Because God is absolutely sovereign, in the same breath, he calls us to reflect that glory, to ascribe to him the glory due his name, to give him praise and worship. Psalm 29.2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now, what does it mean to ascribe to the Lord glory due his name? So let's do a little bit of question and answer here. Hopefully you're tracking with me. Do we add to God's glory? Do we subtract to God's glory when we don't worship him? No. Okay, good. I'm glad you're tracking with me. Do you make God more glorious than he already is when you worship him? Is there some deficiency in God that we must correct that makes him more glorious when we worship him? So why worship him? He's already glorious and we don't do anything to add to his glory. Why do it? To ascribe glory to God means we give him back what he already deserves. We don't add a measure to his glory. We reflect back the glory that he inherently has. He's worthy. He's powerful. He's awesome. And because of that, we get the privilege of worshiping him. He doesn't need our praise. But he deserves our praise. And because he deserves our praise, we praise him. The name I am also means that God's unchanging. He's the unchangeable God. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Does God change his mind? No. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation of shadow due to change. Now here's where it gets real practical for Moses. God is unchanging in his essence, his being. He doesn't change in who he is. And that's, that's wonderful. 
But God also doesn't change in his promises made to us. What God says he will do, he will do. The Lord was faithful. Here's what Moses hears from God. Moses, listen. I was faithful to Abraham. Never let him down. I was faithful to Isaac. Never let him down. I was faithful to Jacob. Never let him down. And guess what? I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm never going to let you down. And guess what, church? He's the same God. He will be faithful to you and never let you down. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. He is the unchanging God. That's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 talks about Jesus. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, in Him. That is why through Him we utter our amen, our amen to God for His glory. God is a steadfast anchor for the soul, Hebrews 6 says. God has an unchangeable decree. God does not change. So let me just ask you a question. Do you want... A God who changes his mind and goes back on his promises. Do you want a God that's somewhat halfway sovereign and limited in his sovereignty? Do you want a God who's contingent or dependent upon you? Do you want a God that never intervenes in your life because he's distant? Now here's a wrong way to translate, I am who I am. Do you want a God who says to Moses, I may be who I may be, but in the end, I'm not really sure if I am that I am. You want that kind of God, a maybe God or an I am God? Now, I want you to remind you of something that we've been talking about every week when we look at the book of Exodus. Who's the main character of Exodus? Who's the main character of Exodus? Jesus. Jesus is the main character of Exodus. You say, well, I don't see Jesus here. In the Gospel of John, over seven times, Jesus made this statement, I am. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, 7, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door for the sheep. John 10, 14 through 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five through 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 8, 56-59. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out into the temple. It is no mistake that Jesus purposely uses that word. 
what's Jesus doing? That burning bush and holiness that you saw, Moses, what the great I am, that's Jesus in the flesh. He is the great I am. He is fully God and fully man. He's the eternal son of God. He's absolute deity. And then in John 14, 8 through 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you want to know who the great I am is, and you really can't quite wrap your mind around the unfathomable God who is, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in action. Look at our Savior who is the great I am. He's the bread of life who nourishes your spiritual poverty and hunger. He's the light of the world that overcomes your dark heart and gives you life. He's the door. He's the gate. He's the only way to get you into God's presence. He's the good shepherd. He will lead you and guide you and protect you. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the only way that you can have that eternal life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. You can't get to heaven except through him. He's divine. Apart from him, you can do nothing. This inexhaustible, sovereign, immutable, unchanging, great I am of a God did something unthinkable. He sent his one and only son to leave the glories of heaven so that the great I am could be with us, live a perfect life, die the death we deserve to die, and rise again three days later so you and I could have an ultimate relationship with the great I am. You know what Jesus said in the book of Revelation? You think his I am statements are done in John. Boom, 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 like seven of them. For Abraham was, I am. Guess what happens at the end of the Bible? Jesus throws another one in there just just for fun. He appears to John at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And listen to what Jesus says to John in Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Do you worship the great I am, the Almighty Lord? And here's why we worship him, because he has a purposeful plan. He has a personal name, and he's got a powerful hand. Now, what's the opposite of that? Do you put trust in your purposeful plan? Do you put stock in your name? Do you put all your hope in your hand? Where's your trust? Is your trust in you? Or is your trust in the great I am? Where's your allegiance this morning? Have you placed all of your trust in the great I am? I am who I am has sent you. Would we bow down and worship the great I am this morning? Let me ask you to bow your heads. After preaching this message, really understand the fullness of what I just preached. I 
confess that I, don't, I really don't know all there is to know about you being the great I am. And I thank you for that, Lord, because if I understood it and I knew it, you would not be God. I would be. So I thank you for the mystery. I thank you for the majesty, the, the weight, the glory. Thank you that we have a God who is and a God who acts. That you're powerful. That you're sovereign. That you're the creator of all things. And Jesus, I am so thankful that you brought clarity to that by expressing all the ways that you are the great I am, by being our shepherd, being our bread of life, being our light, being our resurrection, being our vine, being the Alpha and the Omega. So, Lord, on a day like this, the only real response we can have is just to, to bow and worship. To submit ourselves to the great I Am. And that's what we want to do this morning. We want to worship you. We want to take off our sandals because we're on holy ground. And the beauty of it is, Lord, you meet us right where we are. You don't rebuke us. You don't turn away, but you receive us through Jesus Christ. Praise you, Lord, for the access we have to the Father through you. I want us to stand together and sing the great I Am as a church family.